This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Monday, January 24th, 2022. Welcome to a new broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. So happy to have each and every one of you aboard every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. It's The Guy Benson Show. I am, of course, your host, Guy Benson, Fox News contributor, townhall.com political editor. And in my TV role here at the network, a little programming note. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel, 6 p.m. Eastern time hour towards the end. And then I'll be joining Kennedy's panel on Fox Business Network the following hour around 7 Eastern. Hope to see you there here on the radio show. Our website, always the same, GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast is always free of charge. You can also follow what we're up to on social media. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. That's an option for you. You can also follow me personally at Guy P. Benson or just double dip on both. Guy P. Benson, Guy Benson Show. Those are the handles on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Programming today on the radio side. General Jack Keene is going to be here this hour. Obviously, a lot of global apprehension about what's going to happen in Ukraine. The U.S. is advising some of their personnel and diplomats' families to get out of Ukraine. The Ukrainians say that's a huge overreaction. The EU is not doing that. There are now 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened preparedness, that sort of footing, as the world waits to see what Putin is going to do. We will talk to General Jack Keane about all of that coming up in a few minutes. Congressman Mike Gallagher, who is a Marine, He will be here in the next hour to talk about that issue and more domestic politics as well. Republican of Wisconsin, Congressman Gallagher coming up. Howie Kurtz will also join us, host of Media Buzz. We'll get into some media criticism, as we always do with Howie. And then in our final hour, the happy hour, Will Kane joins us. We always love chatting with Will. We'll talk about sports, that absolutely crazy, thrilling weekend of football that we just saw in the NFL, plus... Will just said something on the air. He said that Joe Biden is the worst president in his lifetime and maybe in the history of the country. We'll ask him about that assertion when we chat with Will coming up in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin. Stats on COVID, 70.6 million combined cumulative um, positive cases. That's the stat that, as we say every single day, is vastly underreported. There have been tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of cases in this country, maybe 100 million, that did not officially get logged in with the government. So 70 million plus is a lowball. 
the death toll in America, all in, people dying with or of COVID in the United States, now 865,567. The Dow continues to get walloped, down 511 points right now at 33,753. Jitters about what's happening overseas. Jitters about the economy here at home. I've seen a few people talking about the R-word recession. I don't know about that, but the markets are not stable, and they've been falling for a number of days, and today, again, no exception, uh, deep, deep in the red. Although better than session lows, we'll see what things look like in 50 minutes when the markets close just a few blocks from here as we're doing the show from New York. As I mentioned, a lot of TV duties tonight and then also later on in the week, we'll get you those details tomorrow and Wednesday. Now, we are going to turn our attention to Russia in the second half, the back half of this hour. But I want to start on covid and our response to COVID, and the backlash that is finally happening against over-the-top, unscientific safetyism. Barry Weiss is a former New York Times editor. She famously left that newspaper in a blaze of glory, wrote a scathing resignation letter, and she's gone independent. She's got a sub-stack. I think she's really interesting. She's left of center. And she's not a conservative. She is strongly against the woke crowd. So we respect her a lot for that. She fights them all the time. And she was on Bill Maher's show Friday night, real time. And she went on a bit of a rant that went everywhere. She said that she has had enough. She is over it. She explained why. And listen to the audience reaction throughout this. This is a notoriously left-wing audience out there in L.A. for Bill Maher. She had a lot of the crowd behind her as she said this in Cut 14. I'm done. With this question? No, I'm, I'm done with COVID. Oh, I'm done. That. It's yeah. like I, I went so hard on COVID. I, yeah, I remember. sprayed the Pringles cans that I bought at the grocery store, stripped my clothes off because I thought COVID would be on my clothes. Like, I did it all. I watched Tiger King. I got to the end of Spotify. Like, we all did it, right? No, no, we didn't all do it. Well, well, here's the thing. A lot of us us did do it. And then we were told, you get the vaccine. You get the vaccine and you get back to normal. And we haven't gotten back to normal. And it's ridiculous at this point. I know that so many of my liberal and progressive friends are with me on this. And they do not want to say it out loud because they are scared to be called anti-vax or to be called science denial or to be, you know, smeared as a Trumper. I'm sorry, if you believe the science, you will look at the data that we did not have two years ago and you will find out that cloth masks do not do anything. So she's clearly on a roll here and she didn't stop there. Barry Weiss continues, cut 15. You will realize that you can show your vaccine passport at a restaurant and still be asymptomatic and carrying Omicron. And you will realize, most importantly, that this is going to be remembered by the younger generation as a catastrophic moral crime. The city of Flint, Michigan, which is 80 percent, I think, minority students, has just announced indefinite virtual schooling. In the past two years, we've seen among young girls a 51 percent increase in self-harm. People are killing themselves. They are anxious. They are depressed. They are lonely. 
That is why we need to end it more than any inconvenience that it's been to the rest of us. I think it's a, it's a pandemic. It's, it's like at this point, it's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's not it's not real anymore. It's a pandemic of bureaucracy. Big crowd. We need to end it. I'm over it, she said. What's the phrase? Into my veins? Directly into my veins? That's how I felt watching that from Barry Weiss. And she speaks for so many people. So many people who did everything they were told, and then it never seems to quite end. And these neurotic people who keep pretending that the data isn't the data, and their made-up version of science is the real science, there are still far too many of them calling the shots. So that clip went around the world and got a lot of attention, a lot of applause, but some people are not happy about it, including Jimmy Acosta over at CNN who got demoted into a weekend show. I don't know how many people watch CNN on the weekends, uh, but he's got that show, and oh, he was not, not pleased at all with Barry Weiss. How can she say that? Take it away, Jim. Cut 16. I'm done with that attitude, honestly. I mean, you know, I mean, she needs to understand that uh, trolling people to own the libs is not a sacrifice. She is a lib, Jim. Just like you. Jim Acosta, of course, a progressive activist with a press badge. I'm done with that attitude. Oh, how brave of you. So brave, Jim Acosta. Here's the thing, Jimmy. If you don't like what Barry Weiss said, and you feel like everyone should be in eight masks and they should be required just to go out and live their lives to have like every booster shot from now until eternity, you, Jiminy, can live your life that way. You don't. I guarantee you, you don't, by the way. But you could. If that's what you want for you and your family, go for it. Knock yourself out. Don't force that on everyone else. We've had enough I'm so pro-vaccine. Everyone who listens to this show knows it. I got double vaccinated. Then I got COVID. It was pretty mild. I will talk to my doctor next month, six months later, whether it's time for a booster, whether that makes sense for me. I'm going to address that with my doctor. I'm leaning towards doing it. I am pro-vaccine. I am also done like Barry Weiss's. I've had enough We'll talk about it later in the show. I was just in Texas where things were sensible and normal. And you can make decisions for yourself as an adult. And then I flew to New York, which is where I am now. And it's like, oh, welcome back to Rulesville. Even if the rules make absolutely no sense. So Bill Maher on that same show made a joke that made some ladies on The View very angry. Oh, they were angry. Here's what Marr said Friday night on HBO, Cut 23. I don't want to live in your paranoid world anymore, your masked paranoid world. You know, you go out, it's silly now. You know, you have your mask, you have to have a card, you have to have a booster, they scan your head. <laughs> like you're a cashier and I'm a bunch of bananas. <laughs> I'm not bananas, you are. So Hoopy Goldberg at The View, who, with all due respect, knows so little about this stuff. Like some of her comments in recent weeks shows that she knows so, so little about the data and the science. But that does not prevent her from waltzing into a studio and talking to millions of women every day and spreading a bunch of fear and paranoia based on not data. 
with a lot of self-righteousness, she was big mad at Bill Maher for that joke. Cut 24. This was today. That's not really funny to people who have lost their kids mm, no. to this vaccine or people who have lost family members or dear friends to this. It's, it's just, you know, listen, nobody on the planet really wants to go through this. This is not something we're doing because it's, you know, sexually gratifying. This is what we're doing to protect our families. And you don't have to do it, but stay away from everybody. Because if you're the one who's not paying attention... And you're coughing and sneezing. You don't want to then stay out of the public, man. This is not nobody wants this. No, no, I don't want it. This is the thing. And I think he's forgetting that people are still. This is the thing, Whoopi. If you want to do all these things and want to be super, quote unquote, safe, even though that's not what the data shows or the science, you should be the one at this point isolating yourself from society. Don't force the rest of us to live that way. Don't force the rest of us to live that way. And it is so cheap and unfair to pretend that being critical of dumb, baseless, nonsense restrictions is somehow being cavalier and callous towards the people who've died or their families. Of course not. We give the number every day on this show. People who have died from this. Although she talked about kids. It's been a tiny, vanishingly small number of kids. Far more kids have died in car accidents and in swimming pool drownings than from COVID. So to talk about kids, again, that's just like another example of fear-mongering and spreading garbage to try to pull at people's heartstrings and make them afraid. You say, oh, well, putting that stat into context, that's cruel, that's callous. No, it's not. It's about risk assessment, which is what public policy is, Whoopi. So she's all indignant over Bill Maher saying we have to get back to something much closer to normal, and we cannot keep doing these superstitious rituals that don't align with the data. But Whoopi was very angry about that. And then one of her co-hosts went on to say this in Cut 25. They're over it, like, yeah. like a relationship. I'm yeah. over it. I don't feel like I don't seeing think we're anymore. To the post-mask part, because I think there's a prudence we've learned with the mask, the hand sanitation. Uh, hand sanitizing that kind of like 9-11 with flying is always going to be here now. There's a new normal. In the beginning, when at post 9-11, people didn't want to fly and the security measures felt like, uh, how do we do this? You know, and now it's the norm. I think some of the things we've learned in this pandemic are going to stay the same. I may never ride a subway again without a mask. I may never go indoors to big crowds and ever feel comfortable without a mask. And that's up to me to do that. That's Sarah Haynes. Again, If that's what she wants to do for the rest of her life, she says it's prudent because she's scared to wear a mask everywhere she goes, indoors and crowds. Your call, Sarah, don't impose that on everyone else, especially don't impose that on children. Where there are harms to children for forcing them to wear masks for hours every day and there are not proven benefits and it doesn't stop the virus. And kids, by virtue of being kids, are basically vaccinated against this disease because almost none of them who contract it get even moderate, let alone severe, symptoms, let alone die. The problem is they're having that conversation on The View, and they all agree they're out of step now at this point with most of the country. And they want to take their fears 
and their so-called solutions that are not based on science and make that what we have to do across the country in the name of safety and health. And they want to do it indefinitely, as she said. This might become the new normal. No, masking, especially of children, cannot become the new normal. This mentality, what you just heard there from the ladies at The View, has to be actively resisted and defeated. More on that when we come back as we just get started on this Monday. It's The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So in Virginia, the showdown is underway. The governor's order, where Governor Yunkin has said parents can now choose if their kids wear masks or not, It is now in place in Virginia. And there are reprisals. There have been threats that kids will be suspended. I saw a local news report that in Loudoun County, they're pulling kids out of classrooms if they're not wearing a mask and putting them in the gym or the auditorium and forcing them to do remote learning, quote unquote, which we know is a failure. This is in contradiction of what the governor has ordered. Now, Defenders of the mask mandates, and I think it's just totally unscientific at this point. We've been through that many times on the show, the actual data. But they would say that there's a law in place in Virginia that contradicts what the governor has done, which could be the basis of this back and forth and the legal wrangling that's absolutely going to play out. But to me, what is just outrageous is that after all this time, finally parents just have the choice for their own kids. And in blue areas of the state, there are kids getting punished because their parents have decided that it's time for the masks to come off. Now, the good news is the law that's in question, there is a member of the state Senate, a Democrat, who has come out and said he would get ready to join with Republicans to repeal the law if there are not end dates soon on the mask mandates in schools. He said it is not an acceptable long-term solution. There have to be off-ramps with specific dates. He does not want to see this going on indefinitely, saying that these mandates have to end. That's a Democrat in the closely divided Virginia Senate. So I think public opinion and reality is moving awfully quickly on this issue. I hope so. For the sake of the kids. The Guy Benson Show continues. General Jack Keane coming up. 
out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free every day. Let's get to our first guest on today's show. It's General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, welcome back. Oh, delighted to be back. I want to start with this. I've seen some of the arguments back and forth about diplomats' families and certain personnel at the embassy being told they should start to get out of Ukraine, get out of Kiev ahead of what could be this Russian invasion, Russian incursion, whatever it's going to be. And I see that the Ukrainian government is saying that is way premature for the Biden administration to be doing that. The EU is not recommending a similar course of action for their diplomats and families at this time yet. Setting that aside, and you can address that if you want to, General, I'm sort of wondering if the Biden administration is saying that at least some of our personnel need to get out of Kiev, would that not suggest that they're expecting potentially a much bigger invasion, not just an incursion into some, you know, uh, distant part of Ukraine, but potentially all the way into the into the capital? I mean, I'm sort of reading into that as saying they think that Putin might be going for regime change or something here. Am I missing something? Well, first of all, we just don't flat know how much you know, the administration knows in terms of its intelligence services and and um, what is the likely scale of this attack is what you're what you're dealing with. If, if there is going to be one, I I I kind of think that they're being influenced by the Afghanistan debacle, and they don't want to do anything that would create a situation which projected that they were really were not on top of it. Um, if, if this situation is as many of us who are analyzing it turns out to be the case that Putin is not going to do uh, an all out invasion to occupy Ukraine uh, for two reasons. One, he hasn't prepared his population for that kind of an event, which would mean uh, several thousand casualties to Russians fighting the, the Ukraine army in its entirety. Um, and number two, I think he fears the obvious that would come of such, such an endeavor that the Ukrainians would conduct an insurgency against a Putin government that's now in charge of Ukraine. Obviously, there would be Ukrainians running this, uh, stooges for, for Putin like Yanukovych was prior to his 2014 ouster by the Ukrainian people. And and the Ukrainians would fight him for as long as it took. He would be involved in a protracted war. He knows that. And he's got Afghanistan, the Soviet Union's involvement in Afghanistan in the 80s for almost a decade in his rearview mirror. And that turned out to be something of a fiasco for them because the, the steady and persistent casualties that he experienced were not showing a lot of progress uh, in Afghanistan. The Russian people, principally Soviet Union writ large, 
uh, force the leadership to get out of there. So, yeah, I, I think the most likely is if there is a, a military invasion, it's likely in the east. He may uh, take some troops across the, the Belarus-Ukraine uh, border. Um, yeah, that's why I'm wondering could, about sort of evacuating or telling some of our people to leave the capital city. I mean, that caught my attention as saying that seems like a much bigger invasion if that's at least within the the the, the matrix of threats here that they're looking at. And that's perhaps part of the reason why the Ukrainians have been pushing back, saying uh, that is a significant overreaction from the Biden administration, at least at this time. General, we've seen the reports. It started in the New York Times was the first place I saw it reported. And then it was confirmed at the White House. There are 8,500 troops. I think the Pentagon confirmed this too. 8,500 U.S. troops now in a heightened state of readiness. What exactly does that mean? And if they were to be deployed, where would they go? Yeah, well, these troops are not going to Ukraine. We have three presidents that have made a decision this is Obama, Trump, and Biden, that the United States is not going to go to war over Ukraine because they're, they're a non-aligned country. That means they're not in a part of NATO. And so these troops are, are going to go to NATO countries that are in the vicinity of Ukraine, likely Poland, possibly Romania, Bulgaria, etc. You put them into the Baltic states as well. Now, to reinforce those NATO countries, to send a message clearly to Putin, you know, Putin has two objectives. One is, is certainly to make certain that Ukraine never does join NATO or join the EU, and that he's very frustrated with the potential of a thriving capitalistic democracy uh, on his border, uh, only 300 uh, miles from Moscow. Uh, and, and that's what this is all about, certainly. But the, the second thing is, and he, for 20 years, he's been trying to undermine and divide NATO. And he's had some success at it, to be frank. Uh, so we're putting troops in there to make certain that he gets the message that we will defend NATO countries. And we're bringing troops from as far away as the United States and obviously in other Western uh, European countries and move them to the east to send that message to Putin. I, I do agree with, with that move, and I thought it should have been done, actually, in the spring when, uh, when Putin made his first demonstration of forces on the Ukraine border. General, you mentioned some potential fissures within NATO, and that has been, of course, Putin's goal for a while. You said he's had some success. Is he having some success right now? Because we watched President Biden's press conference last week, and a lot of people, of course, looked very closely at the minor incursion statement that Biden made, and the administration had to backtrack on that. But one of the other eyebrow-raising things that the president said, he kind of admitted that NATO is not all on the same page, including potentially some big players within NATO. They're not walking in lockstep. They're not necessarily in a position of unity where they would act in unison, if Russia does certain things like an incursion of some sort, does it perhaps uh, factor into Putin's thinking here? If he gets the sense that he can push his luck, he can defy the threats and the admonitions, and there won't be 
a, a unified response from all of NATO, especially if the Germans, for example, feel like it might not be in their economic interest to do so, does that embolden him further? How, what's your read on that right now? Yeah, well, I think he's pretty tuned in to where NATO is. I mean, first of all, the administration made a strategic decision that we would not do anything preemptively. In other words, prior to an invasion, to deter the invasion. Uh, and by that, I mean massive uh, upgunning of uh, Ukraine's military, not just anti-tank weapons and some small arms, but really things that they, they need, anti-drone uh, missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, a significant amount of missile defense systems, artillery and mortars. These are all things that have been that they've requested for some time. And then the troop movements that we're discussing here now, but also slap slap them hard with economic sanctions preemptively. Them, but they and you said yeah, that they made, they made the decision strategically not to do those things. Our not colleague at Fox, Jackie Heinrich, she asked this question to the president. She said. Why are you waiting for Putin to make the first move? Biden didn't like the question. The president called that a stupid question. It seems to be a very reasonable and relevant question to me. It is. I mean, what is what is bizarre is the decision that they did make. In other words, they are trying to deter an invasion by threatening dire consequences that would take place after the invasion and therefore – Russia would not invade based on those consequences. Here's the problem with that, and you already mentioned one of them. Putin has absorbed economic sanctions in the past. He's quite dismissive of them. They've never had any impact on his behavior. Number two is, yes, we do not have unanimity here. There's a, it's a fact that Germany depends on uh, 50% of their natural gas comes from Russia, Nord Stream Pipeline 1, and other factors. Nord Stream Pipeline 2 isn't on there yet. And the EU is 40%. So we believe, our administration isn't telling us this, but it is a fact. If if those energy stores start to dry up because Putin is pushing back on the sanctions, it's likely those European countries that are so dependent on that, because we're still in the winter months, are going to renege on some of these sanctions. And Putin is very much aware of this. Plus, is there a hedge against that? Is there a way to to take some of that leverage and power away from Putin? Well, the United States, when it comes to economic sanctions, really has a big hammer. And that is, you know, the international financial system uh, is based on a dollar. And we can go after the the international financial messaging system, the so-called SWIFT system, and hammer him really hard. He only has a couple of really big banks that matter, and we can nail these guys. So, yes, even even with the problems with the Europeans here, we can hurt Putin uh, quite a bit ec- economically. And, and certainly we should really give the Ukrainians uh, the arms that they need to deal with uh, with Putin, Putin knows like defensive well. weapons. The Ukrainians have improved in seven years. It, they have improved, um, and listen, they've got a they've got one hundred and eighty thousand troops in 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 their army. Putin has two hundred eighty thousand. He's probably got about forty percent of, of his forces deployed around uh, Ukraine, and then Ukrainians will fight. I mean, they don't have the capabilities that the Russians have, but they have the will. And will is very important. We saw what a lack of will looks like uh, with the Afghan uh, security forces folding 
uh, when they no longer had air power support from the from the United States. But these guys are going to fight. There are going to be casualties uh, on on both sides, regardless of the scale of, of the military operation. There was a series of reports about some of the European countries doing their own little confab and get together and discussions about Ukraine. The U.S. was not included. In that, it seems like the Germans and their new government, they've been reluctant to play ball and in some cases even meet uh, with the Biden administration, which seems a little bit concerning on that front. Is there a potential situation here where Putin gets right up to the brink of an invasion of some sort and then the West effectively panics and gives him concessions? I mean, what concessions would he want? Well, I think we're still in that phase. In other words, he militarily, he's preparing to conduct an operation. And he's preparing his troops for that, likely going through rehearsals, firing weapons and things things of that nature. Some of the troops that he's bringing in from the east that are coming into Belarus are still, are still coming from as far away as Siberia on trains. He's got ships moving from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And they're in transit, amphibious ships where he can put troops on. So he's still in preparation phase. We have the Olympics coming guy on February the 4th. He's attending it. I find it hard to believe he'd be conducting an invasion of Ukraine and take all the television cameras away from the Olympics and put them on what he's doing. The Olympics end on the 20th. And the, by the way, the ground starts to thaw rather considerably in mid-March. And right now the conditions are ideal for the, for the ground. So he's he's got a narrow window. But the... the the reality is he still wants concessions. He'll take the concessions if he can get them. And, and, uh, and the diplomatic effort is still ongoing. The United States has agreed to put in writing their answer to the written proposals that uh, Putin and his uh, national security team made to the United States and to NATO. And some of those proposals and, are just totally unacceptable. Oh, they're, they're outrageous. Yeah, they're outrageous. And he knows that, but he, he, he may be looking for something a little bit less than that. Uh, and certainly he, he's very frustrated by the upgunning of forces in Eastern Europe, uh, and particularly missiles being deployed in those areas because they can range, obviously range Russia. And he also uh, gets frustrated by the scale and frequency of military exercises because he does his own. And as you know, he's now talking about uh, cruise missiles, intermediate range missiles, uh, should not be deployed, but he's the guy that deployed them, and that is why the Trump administration came out of the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty that dealt with uh, the ra- medium-range missiles. We came out of it because they were blowing it off. And right. they, he was they in violation, and now he's, now he's mad at the response, yeah. which is what tyrants do. Last question, General Keene, and it comes back to something that you just briefly mentioned in passing, military exercises. I saw a report late, uh, late last week, I should say, from French media that there are now announced war games or war exercises combined among the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians. That was not necessarily a shocking development, but a chilling one that kind of Sounded to me like a, a newer version or neo access of evil. Just your reaction to those regimes, seemingly at least on some level, now starting to work together more. Yeah, well, it's very it's very disturbing and concerning, certainly. Um, so 
certainly Russia and China, and now Russia, China, and Iran. Russia's had a relationship with the Iranians in the Middle East, and China also has a relationship with, with Iran in, in the Middle East. So the fact that all three of them are come, uh, coming together, it, it's because they're, they're standing in opposition to the international order that exists out there. And, and their regimes, are all authoritarian regimes, see the United States and the Europeans and our regional allies as adversaries. And, and I think it makes sense what they're doing. Uh, from their perspective, and it's something that gives us pause for concern. This is why I'm so frustrated with the Biden administration in the Middle East not continuing the Abraham Accords, which was the diplomatic relationships among the Arabs and the Israelis, and and to continue that because the strategic objective of that relationship was to counter the Iranians. And and we should be doing that clearly. Expanding it. I mean, it's still in place, but expanding it, I think, seems like a great idea to me. There's a lot of people trying to downplay it because it's a Trump administration achievement, but it's still a great thing. Uh, and that, I think, comes back to domestic politics here, unfortunately. We've got to leave it there for now. But this issue and this threat not going away, it seems, anytime soon. General Jack Keane, we will revisit this with you, I'm sure. Retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Guy, and your audience. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. So, a little bit of Fox News news. Exciting stuff happening. Some announcements just recently about new shows coming to the weekend. On Fox News Channel, our Fox radio colleague, Brian Kilmeade, of course, co-host of Fox and Friends. He is now going to get a Saturday evening show, as will our buddy Lawrence Jones. His show is going to be called Lawrence Jones Cross Country. Dan Bongino moves to 9 p.m. And the reason that there's a bit of a shuffle on Saturday nights is because Judge Janine has been moved full time to the five. And, of course, Jesse Waters who had Waters World for years, that show is going away because Jesse Waters' prime time debuts tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. That 7 o'clock slot is now his, and he smashes it, I would imagine, in the ratings. We've seen it in recent months, and he is going to have his maiden voyage of Jesse Waters' prime time tonight after a special report, so I'll be the lead-in. So we'll try to give him a good lead-in tonight. Congrats, Jesse and crew on the new shows. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. 3 to 6 Eastern every day and around the clock for free on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. That's the podcast option as well. I will be on special report tonight, the panel, like 6.40 or so Eastern time, Fox News Channel. Also joining Kennedy's show at 7 p.m. Eastern this evening on FBN. Fox News alert as we enter the middle hour. Big rally on Wall Street. The Dow was way down when we came on the air down more than 500 points. It closed the day in the green, up 99 to 34,300. 
and 64. Still to come on the show today, Howard Kurtz, Will Kane. But first, let's get to our next guest, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, a member of the House Armed Services Committee, also the Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. Congressman, it is great to have you back. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me back. Is it too soon to ask you about the Packers game? It's too soon. Okay. Wait a year, and, um, you know, I've been crying for the last 48 hours. I feel bad for the Bills fans, too. I mean, that was a heck of a game. Their pain may be greater than our pain as Packers fans. I think that's probably right, because you at least have had some championships along the way. The Bills, the poor Bills, <laughs> and their fans, I, I tend to agree with you on that. All right, let's uh, put that off to the side. We'll get to football with Will Kane in the next hour. Let's talk about much more serious matters. We had General Keene on the show last hour talking about Russia and Ukraine. What do you make of the current U.S. posture on this potential conflict? What do you make of apparently some disparities within the agreed-upon response if Russia should invade among some of our top allies in NATO? And how does all of this play out in the minds of China as they look ahead toward what they might decide to do one day vis-a-vis Taiwan, for example? Well, I think starting with the Biden administration, we're sending very mixed signals right now. For instance, there was a a report today that we're telling about 8,500 troops to be on alert. At the same time, the State Department is preparing to evacuate personnel from the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. So now the same Biden team that brought you the bungled evacuation from Afghanistan may get a chance to do it again, because, of course, nobody was fired after the Afghanistan fiasco. And we should not have confidence in Secretary Blinken's ability to effectuate an evacuation. And here we are a year into the Biden administration, and you can literally measure America's global retreat by the number of embassies we're evacuating. And how many more do we need to evacuate before Team Biden understands that their foreign policy is not working? Do we need to evacuate our embassy in Kiev? I mean, that seems like... No. Okay. It's a preemptive surrender. It is, a, it is a preemptive surrender and a recognition that this administration is not actually serious about deterring Russia. And I think the dot that needs to be connected is that as Russia prepares to invade Ukraine, the Biden administration is actually relying on Russia as an intermediary to negotiate with Iran over its nuclear program. Reportedly, the Russians made an interim offer on our behalf in Vienna That would give massive benefits to Iran for some sort of resurrection of the Kerry Biden uh, Iran nuclear deal. So no wonder Biden is weak on Russia if indeed they're using Russia as a way to bribe Iran. Uh, This could be the rare uh, double surrender right now that not even Jimmy Carter was capable of doing. And finally, speaking of bad Obama ideas that uh, Biden is resurrecting, it's not just the Iran deal. Uh, His team is now using hashtag diplomacy in Ukraine, which the Obama team used to absolutely zero effect during the last Russian invasion. And I can assure you that neither Putin nor General Secretary Xi is afraid because Secretary Blinken and Jen Psaki are suddenly tweeting I hashtag stand with Ukraine at the same time the commander in chief is effectively greenlighting a minor incursion into Ukraine. So on balance, just just mixed signals from this administration, a projection of weakness. Uh, And I think that's why we see divisions in the NATO alliance right now and why the Germans have been so problematic in this, because the administration hasn't forcefully led from the front. And I fear it will undermine 
our ability to deter China beyond this particular crisis. Yeah, what is the mentality right now in Taipei? Yeah, I think you're seeing, you're actually seeing the Chinese Communist Party so-called wolf warrior diplomats all over Twitter right now uh, promoting pro-Russian propaganda, promoting the narrative that the U.S. can't be counted on in a crisis. This is the exact same thing we saw after Afghanistan, where you had uh, Chinese Communist Party-owned propaganda outlets writing op-eds specifically addressed to the people of Taiwan saying, look, America can't be counted on. And I think if you're General Secretary Xi Jinping, you're thinking, okay, after the Olympics, you know, I may never get a better opportunity to really accomplish my legacy issue, which is the unification of Taiwan with the mainland. And and I really think that's the problem with the argument that many, even on the right, are saying, well, we don't have any interest in Ukraine. We we can just ignore this. Um, I I don't see that. Uh, In the same way that Afghanistan uh, negatively impacted our standing in Ukraine, I think a collapse of the American position in Ukraine will also negatively impact our position in our most important theater, which is, of course, the Indo-Pacific. Well, and we talked about this a little bit with General Jack Keane in the last hour as well. It seems like some of our adversaries and enemies are sending a pretty significant signal to us and to the West broadly with these announced joint war exercises among the Russian military, the Chinese military, and the Iranian military They're kind of saying, hey, we see the global order as currently dominated by the West. We don't want that to continue, and we may have our disagreements, but we're kind of a counterweight here. I mean, that counterweight should – that counterweight, rather, should be, I think, disturbing to anyone who values freedom at all, including every single American, because if the U.S. – I'm not saying that we need to be out there as, you know, world policemen and constantly engaged in, you know, wars or invasions or occupying territory or things like that. But if we recede from the world stage, there are forces out there that will fill the gap, fill the void, and the Chinese-Russian-Iranian alliance would be more than happy to do that. And I can't imagine arguing the world would be better off – for it. I completely agree with that. And, and I also think there's a, a, a line of argument uh, on the right sometimes that, well, what we really need to do is align with the Russians against China. Now, that indeed would be great if, if, if our interests were aligned, but it's not going to happen under Vladimir Putin. And in large part, you're seeing this enhanced cooperation because though Russia and China are strange bedfellows, They've almost gone to war in the past. And as China expands, it will sort of butt up against Russian interests. Right now, there's a, it's sort of an alliance of convenience because they both share an interest in undermining American leadership and really fracturing the unity among our, our Western allies. And so I just think any prospect of you know, peeling Putin away uh, in order to, to confront China over the long term is a fantasy right now. And when it comes to China, Putin has made it abundantly clear whose side he's on. So this is a very precarious moment for the United States, particularly when you layer onto this the fact that we are very divided uh, at home. Uh, and I think the Democrats' priorities have really distracted from our ability to project a strong uh, foreign policy. Pursuing this sort of crazy progressive agenda at home, at the same time they're trying to cut money for conventional defense, 
hard power. It seems like this administration just prioritizes diplomacy for diplomacy's sake without understanding that diplomacy, when not backed by military force or a credible threat of force, is useless. You know, the old saying is that um, uh, diplomacy without armaments is like music without instruments. And that's exactly what we have right now. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, the 8th Congressional District in the Badger State. Congressman, always appreciate your time. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, sir. That's Mike Gallagher on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back, a deep dive a little bit into the polling in the wake of last week's March for Life. Some details and context I want you to know next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. On Friday's show, we had a few different members of Congress on who had attended the March for Life in Washington, D.C. And that's an annual event. It's taken place every year since the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision on abortion. And there could be some significant movement on that issue at the court this term based on the Mississippi case, based on what's happening in Texas. And I'm pro-life. One of the reasons that I'm a conservative is that I'm pro-life. I am not as hardline as some people on the issue because I think you have to be incrementalist. You have to be realistic. You have to win hearts and minds. I'm also not someone who wants to jump down the throat of someone who disagrees with me because I think that there are good people who struggle over what can be a complex and painful issue. I think that there are reasons that the pro-life position is the right one. I understand that people view this in some cases as a women's rights issue. I view it as a human rights issue. The question comes down to, can you infringe on someone else's rights? The rights of bodily autonomy for the woman or the right to live for the child? That's where ultimately this issue lies. That's the, the struggle there. And then the question becomes, all right, when does a life deserve legal protection? When does it count as a life? And I think the moment of birth is far too late. Babies are developed. They can feel pain long before the moment of birth. The other bright line is conception. And then there are some of these gray areas in between. And this is where I think a lot of people agree and disagree on the issue of abortion. As I said, my position is a pro-life position because to me it's a human rights issue. What I want to do in this segment briefly is just address some of the polling on the issue because we've heard it from the media. They ask these poll questions all the time. Do you support Roe versus Wade or should it be overturned? And you often get a pretty lopsided answer like, you know, 60-40 or 65-35 in favor of maintaining Roe versus Wade because a lot of people have been falsely conditioned to believe that if Roe versus Wade were to be overturned or altered, I would say altered is probably at least somewhat likely at this point under this court, then all legal abortion would go away and become illegal in the United States. That's not true at all. Abortion policy would then revert back to the states for actual elected representatives to make those policies and set those policies. And you would have different policies in different states based on the attitudes in those states. 
attitudes of the electorate, which I think is much healthier than the Supreme Court inventing a right out of whole cloth where it's nowhere to be found in the actual Constitution. That's what Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, those two cases, that's what they were. Then the Casey precedent in the early 90s shifted it. But what's interesting is because of that misconception, the media, which is just fantastically, phenomenally biased on the issue of abortion, overwhelmingly pro-choice and even more radical, that's the prevailing dominant worldview in newsrooms. So they're very eager to say, oh, look at these polls. People love Roe versus Wade. They don't want it gone. They don't want to grapple with the reality that a lot of people, when you actually ask them about the abortion policy that they would support, for example, in their state, it is not currently, in most cases, allowed under the current Supreme Court doctrine. You would need an alteration of Roe to get to where most Americans actually are on the issue. So Marist, a very well-known pollster, they said, which of the following statements comes closest to your opinion on abortion? One, abortion should be available to a woman at any time that she wants during the entire pregnancy. That is the position, by the way, of the Democratic Party and the media. Abortion on demand at any time for any reason, and by the way, also paid for by all of us taxpayers. That is the official position of the Democratic Party. But only 31% of Democrats in the poll actually agree with it. Only 17% of the American people share that view. So you have this radical abortion mindset in the press and within the Democratic Party, I'm sorry to say, I wish they were more reasonable and more in line with like global mores and norms. That is only shared by 17%, less than one out of five people actually agree. Then an additional 12% of the American people say that they agree with the statement abortion should be allowed only during the first six months of the pregnancy. So illegal, broadly speaking, in the third trimester. That's still a pretty radical position that's far to the left of the global norm. But in total, that's less than 30% of the public believe those things. 71% of the public believes either... Like four other options, abortion should be broadly allowed only in the first trimester and then mostly illegal. Or that abortion should be allowed only in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. That's the plurality, by the way, at 28%. That's basically where I am. Then abortion should be only allowed to save the life of the mother. That's 9%. And then abortion should never be allowed under any circumstance. That's 12%. You add those up. That's 71% of the American people who support significant restrictions on abortion beyond what is currently allowed under Roe versus Wade. And 49% take one of those three more pro-life positions. The country is split on that. What's interesting is half of Democrats poll to the left of their own party, as do 70% of independents as do 93% of Republicans. So a lot of the tastemakers in this country, in the news media and pop culture and the Democratic Party, they align with the overall views of 17% of the country. 71% of us, and we're called anti-women extremists and radicals who want to punish women, all of that. 71%, 7 out of 10 of us, 
believe that abortion should have significant restrictions beyond what the Roe regime allows. And I just think it's important, you know, polls don't define the issue. It comes down to, I think, ethics and science and morals and other questions. But as a matter of the public debate, there's a lot of effort trying to paint 71% of us as the extremists who hate women. Even though there's almost no gender gap on this, the overwhelming majority of women are in this camp that support some more restrictions or are just straight up pro-life. And I think just trying to turn that debate around and say, all right, let's stop with the arguments. Let's stop with the sort of broad brush painting and words like extremists. If anything, the extremists are on the other side of this conversation. Let's have the conversation in an honest way. And I think when you do that, yes, views are nuanced. Yes, there's some gray area in there. The American public isn't at one extreme or the other, but one extreme tends to have a much louder megaphone out there in the culture. And I just want you to know the reality actually looks quite different. With that, we will break and come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show on the Guy Benson Show in New York City for the first few days of the week. Glad to be here. Glad to have you all along. With us is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Also host of the hit podcast Media Buzz Meter. You can follow him on Twitter as I do at Howard Kurtz. Howie, great to have you back. I follow you, too. Hi, Guy. I appreciate that. Reciprocity. We did not get a chance to talk about last week's press conference from your vantage point, because I think a lot of people in our audience, in this case, listen to that press conference, listening to the words of the president, thinking a bit about what the press was asking and that sort of thing, but really focused on Biden. You are sort of the in-house media critic here at Fox. Before I ask you about Biden's performance, what did you think of the press corps performance over those two hours last week? It was really a moment of truth for the White House press corps because uh, after months of pretty soft treatment of this president, everything seems to be going wrong. Is losing uh, the, all his battles on the hill. His poll numbers are down. Inflation and you know the whole litany. Uh, and I thought many of the journalists really stepped up and asked the kind of skeptical and in some cases pretty aggressive questions questions that you would expect, particularly NBC's uh, uh, Kristen Welker saying, you know, uh, black voters uh, went out and essentially elected you and they don't feel you have you have been fighting hard enough for them. Others asking about Hill setbacks. So I thought on balance, you could say, well, the press corps is coming into uh, better touch with reality, but I thought the questioning was pretty good. And of course, it went on forever, and people who never in a million years expected to ask a question of the president uh, got to do so because of the length of the presser. Now, there was a question that was asked by one of our colleagues. Now, Peter Ducey got one in at the press conference, but days later, Jackie Heinrich had a question for President Biden. He reacted very negatively to the question. It's not the easiest to hear, but cut 19. Are you waiting on Putin to make the first move, sir? 
So you couldn't hear his response. But the question was, why are you waiting on Putin to make the first move, sir, in this whole standoff? And he says, what a stupid question. Well, Howie, just even if you think it is a stupid question, it's interesting to hear the president say that. I know we had a lot of people clutching at pearls when the last guy would say hostile things to the press. But as far as I'm concerned, that's absolutely not a stupid question at all. And there have been some very smart foreign policy people who have been asking exactly that same type of question. And I just wonder what you make of that little back and forth with Biden getting pretty churlish there and attacking the question itself which doesn't seem at all out of bounds. Quite the contrary. Yeah, perfectly legitimate question. And by the way, you're right. If he doesn't like the question, you know, there's 15 different ways to answer it without answering it, whatever. Stupid question is insulting. He did a little bit of that at the Marathon press conference where the question was also legitimate, where he said, well, go back and read my speech in English. I assume you got into journalism because you like to write. I do not understand why Joe Biden is so thin-skinned about the press, given that he got very uh, sympathetic treatment, I would say, during the campaign and in the first six months as president. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he, when he lets it show, it's very unattractive. Is it at Donald Trump levels of hostility? No, but he doesn't get the, the Trump level hostile coverage uh, that the former oh, president nowhere close. in the press corps. Yeah, not even in the same. Uh, and and certainly not anywhere close to the hand wringing about the response to the reporters who asked these questions. And by the way, it's one thing for a reporter to ask a question that maybe is unfair. And the politician or whomever to get cranky about it, maybe a little bit ill, and they come back and, and maybe snap at the person. In the cases that we're just talking about here, that you just gave the example, and we played the clip from Jackie, those were both legitimate questions. And I think, from my perspective, Biden was just wrong on the facts, wrong to say that he was taken out of context or didn't say what he really said in his horrible, you know, Bull Connor uh, harangue. And on the Russia question, it's, it, it's not stupid at all. I wonder, Howie, if you think, because you were just sort of musing, it's strange that he would be this hostile given how positive the overall coverage has been for him as a candidate and as president. Maybe that that insight is the answer to your own question, meaning he's grown entitled, as I think many Democrats do, entitled to positive or at least relatively kid gloves type coverage from the press. And when they don't get what they're expecting and they feel like they deserve from their fellow liberals, it feels almost like a betrayal so they get angry. That might be right. There's another possible explanation, which is even with Joe Biden's, you know, 150 years on the public stage and his eight years as vice president, it's different when you're the man, when you're the guy, and every word, every syllable you say is carefully weighed. So the other questions that have gotten him really uh, ticked off over the last year have been, well, how are you confident that such and such will happen? You'll be able to pass this bill. And he takes that as kind of a personal affront. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way, if you would ask me just when the news conference ended, hey, how do you think Biden did? I would have said, look, obviously went on too long in the final half hour. He was tired. He was broken sentences. He was meandering and all that. But by and large, I think he showed, I think it was almost a thing with him to show after all the criticism, you're afraid of the press, you're avoiding the press, to show he could stand up for what turned out to be nearly two hours and deal in a substantive way with press questions. But I revised my opinion over the next couple of days because all of the coverage was about his worst moment, as you know, at the news conference when he talked about uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. It would be a minor incursion. We're not sure what we would do. Maybe old NATO is not on Well, I'm questioning the election results, too. I mean, yeah, he, it was that as well. Yeah, and the media 
I think was right to home in on the fact that on several occasions over the course of the two hours, his team, and in some cases he himself, had to go back and clean up what he said under questioning from the press. It's usually not a great sign. Howie, shifting gears, I want to ask you about the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. And I want to come at this from a media perspective. I read a story about how a lot of news and media organizations are not sending a lot of people to Beijing. And some of that's because of budget. Some of that's because of COVID. A lot of it's being dressed up as COVID concerns. But I wonder, could any of this have to do with a protest against the regime in Beijing? And what responsibility does the media have, I would say especially NBC as they broadcast the games, to talk about the moral outrages in, for example, Hong Kong and Xinjiang and elsewhere? Because I think a lot of people in the press say, you know, the time for sweeping difficult conversations under the rug has passed when democracy is in peril, which they say it is here. It absolutely is in Hong Kong, unquestionably, or when there's... A minority group being oppressed, in this case we're talking about genocide, it is unacceptable. Silence is violence. Silence is complicity. All of that stuff. What responsibility does the news media and the sports media covering these Olympic Games have to talk about those things at the risk of riling and rankling the regime, the host regime? I would say a tremendous responsibility because I've always had the view, and this has come up, you know, it came up in the days uh, of the old uh, Soviet Union hosting Olympics, that you can't just go there and say, hey, this is all about, uh, uh, you know, uh, hockey or uh, baseball or tennis or whatever it is, that, that you have to grapple with the geopolitical realities, and that would include whether there's an atrocious human rights record, as there is in China, uh, for the host country. Now, NBC, obviously, in the most delicate position because it doesn't want to lose the revenue from all the Olympic deals, although I guess it's signed that for the next few cycles. Um, and COVID. I, I, know I think the COVID concerns are real in terms of physically sending fewer people or perhaps no people at all. There was recently a, a further outbreak in Beijing. But I think COVID should be talked about. I think all this stuff should be talked about. And I think if the press uh, just limits itself to happy stories profiling these wonderful athletes and so forth, and obviously a lot of people tune in because they care about the athletic competition, I think that would be a, a giant punt. Uh, and a missed opportunity to commit journalism. It's almost like a dereliction. I would go a little further. I'd say it's a dereliction if that's what they do. I suspect they're going to try to strike some sort of balance, but how they do that and what the balance looks like very much remains to be seen, and I will be eager to praise them if they do the right thing and say otherwise if they don't. I'll be watching not as much, I've decided, this year just because of the host country. has nothing to do with anything else. That's just my personal decision, and I'll have more to say about that on the show tomorrow. Howie, last question, totally separate. The trial, the long-awaited trial in this Sarah Palin versus New York Times libel suit is finally moving forward, although it's apparently complicated by a positive COVID diagnosis for Sarah Palin. But this goes back to... An inaccurate smear that was pretty widespread against Sarah Palin years ago during the Obama administration after that horrible shooting involving uh, Gabrielle Giffords, the congresswoman from Arizona, the Democrat. A lot of people tried to turn that into a political story, that this was right-wing violence incited by right-wing rhetoric. They specifically 
cited a target map like targeting districts from Sarah Palin. As it turned out, none of that was a factor. The the shooter was a paranoid schizophrenic who was obsessed with her, uh, with Giffords, that is. And that narrative, though, took on a life of its own. And we could get into a whole conversation about double standards and how the left winger who shot up the baseball field of Republican congressmen, that got much less coverage than Giffords. That was explicitly political, whereas the Giffords shooting was not. But the media covered them like exactly the opposite of what reality was. That's just sort of some of the context for the audience if they'd forgotten what this lawsuit ultimately was about. Where do you come down on this? I know there's a very high bar for a public figure like Sarah Palin to succeed in this type of lawsuit, whether it's slander or libel against the news media. Does she have a case here? What are you expecting? Well, she certainly has a moral case, because as I said at the time, uh, this editorial, uh, which had some phrases added by the then editorial page editor, James Bennett, who later got fired for uh, in another controversial episode, was reprehensible. It was tone deaf. It was mean-spirited. I mean, it tried to try... It was just horrible. And so it was terrible journalism. And I think that the New York Times will take a public relations hit as people get reminded and as testimony is taken about how this could ever be published, given that it was basically complete BS. But on the legal basis, uh, the Times has one thing in its favor, which is the next day or so, it retracted some of what it said, it corrected it, and so it showed a willingness uh, to try to set the record straight. doesn't excuse the original heinous uh, journalism here by any shape of the, uh, any stretch of the imagination, but because there is a high Supreme Court bar, unless this case makes it to the high court and it decides to change the libel laws, showing you have to show malice and or reckless disregard for the right, truth. Actual malice, public, right? Actual malice. If you are a public figure, uh, I think that's going to be tough for Sarah Palin to win the case, but I I think what she wants to do is to teach the New York Times a lesson. So the coverage of the trial, I think, will be as important as what the ultimate verdict is. Howie Kurtz is host of Media Buzz, Fox News Channel, every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern. Catch Media Buzz Meter, his podcast, at foxnewspodcast.com, and follow his tweets, as I do, at Howard Kurtz. Howie, always appreciate it. I'll see you on the TV side soon. Thanks so much, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for being here. I want to go back, circle back, if you will, to something that Jen Psaki said late Friday that I did not see until the weekend. And it just sort of blew my mind that the White House decided to go this direction with their messaging. I actually tweeted about it over the weekend And it went pretty viral. A lot of people amplified it and shared it and responded to it because it's just so ridiculous. Like you would think that maybe in their spin doctor meetings with their spin meister gurus, they would at least have some interest in making their gaslighting somewhat convincing and somewhat aligned with empirical reality as we all see it or at least as we all should see it, based on reality. We have heard from the White House and from the president that some school districts, as he's trying to like downplay any of these school closures, Flint, Michigan, they moved to indefinite virtual school. We saw what happened in Chicago. There have been other districts that have done this in Maryland, in Wisconsin, right, Milwaukee. We continue to see these bureaucrats and teachers unions closing schools. And finding excuses 
to have closed schools. And what the White House says is, oh, that's a very minor problem. They're not acknowledging the year of problems that afflicted many students across the country. And the bluer the area, the more likely these kids were to be harmed with closures because of Democratic politicians and their allies. And the White House doesn't want to grapple with that at all. They just want to say, oh, look at what we have right now, which is still not acceptable, by the way. But this is a problem that is festered for a year and a half on their end of the spectrum. And one of their talking points now is, oh, well, some of these schools aren't doing a good enough job. Some of these places aren't doing a good enough job of spending the money that we provided in the Rescue Act or whatever they called it, nearly $2 trillion of spending, which I guess didn't go to testing in a timely way and didn't get to the schools in a timely way. So much of it was wasteful. That's what we were talking about when we were opposing that legislation, which was partisan as opposed to all the other bipartisan relief efforts prior to that under the previous president, Donald Trump. But in any case, they're saying, oh, yeah, some of the funding to keep schools open hasn't been distributed efficiently. That's kind of their excuse. And they decided to single out one example of where this is a problem. (laughs) I mean, guess which state they picked on cut 20. An example would be Florida, where uh-huh. they have done little to uh, to distribute money, uh, to little to no steps to distribute money to state across the state into school uh, districts. Um, now, part of it is you have to write a plan for how you're going to keep schools open to get the third tranche of money, and some have been delayed in that. But right now, that's an example of a state that could do more. Okay, Florida is the problem, says the White House, on not spending the money fast enough to keep schools open. Do you have any sense of what the problem with this analysis might be? Can you find the hole, the logical hole in the argument we just heard from Circleback? Could it be that the state of Florida, in fact, did not need a new tranche of federal taxpayer money to keep schools open because their schools have been open since August of 2020? Could that be the reason, Jen? They don't need this slush fund. Ron DeSantis and the state of Florida looked at the data early on. They closed schools like everyone else in the spring of 2020. No one knew what was going on. Then we got more and more data. And over the summer, the governor said, enough of this. We need kids in schools. That's what we're doing in Florida. And they did it. The entire ensuing school year and this entire school year, Florida schools have been open. The kids in Florida are infinitely better off because of it. They have not had to wear masks in most cases. Parental choice has been the order of the day in Florida. It has gone exceptionally well in Florida. And these brain dead messengers at the White House say, let's find a way to blame Florida for school closures and not spending the money fast enough when the argument of Florida, the existence of Florida and their policy is a total refutation of the entire White House policy. And they try to gaslight us into saying, oh, Florida's the problem here. It's the opposite. That is some wild stuff. Not today, circle back. You're going to have to do a lot better than that. My goodness. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Will Kane will be here. You don't want to miss that next.
five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Monday happy hour time on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson in New York City. Today and tomorrow and Wednesday, I've got special report and Kennedy tonight. Gutfeld tomorrow, outnumbered Wednesday, busy times here. Glad to have you along every day, 3 to 6 Eastern, on the radio. If you can't catch us live, the podcast is always free, on demand, and it is growing. We gave you some of the stats last week. We are so grateful for the growth and your listenership. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. Everything you need to know right there, GuyBensonShow.com or at GuyBensonShow on Twitter and Instagram. Happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. I had one or two while I was in Austin, Texas over the weekend for Adam's birthday. Delicious stuff. You should try it. And they're expanding massively in the coming weeks and months. More to come on that. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. Speaking of Texas, let's bring in our final guest of the day. Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern, Saturday and Sunday, and host of the Will Kane Podcast at FoxNewsPodcast.com. Will, I was down in Austin. I saw your Longhorns win against Oklahoma State. Final season of the basketball arena down there before the new building is inaugurated. Very fun time in Austin, Texas, as usual. I'm glad you had a good time. It's been a while since I've been to Austin. I lived there for a good three years, and Austin changes overnight. So I think the town that I would go back to would very little resemble the town that I left behind. When I was there, by the way, guy, in the 90s, people used to talk about the 70s. Now I'm sure they were in the 20s. People look back on the 90s very quaintly. But I always loved Austin. It's quirky. It's weird, as <laughs> it they is. say it. Keep Austin weird. Well, it is definitely weird. It is growing. It's just like cranes and construction everywhere. And it was just awesome to be at a Longhorns game. They had, at one point at halftime, they did a baby race where they had like a little start line and finish line, and they had infants from the crowd come and try to crawl to their parent, and it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> it was abs- The place was going totally crazy. There was one baby that was in the lead for a while and then got distracted by the mascot, Hook'em, oh. and, and couldn't. It was just totally entranced by Hook'em. And then another baby who had been doing nothing, just sitting there, boom, just went past everyone, blew past the whole field and won, and the place erupted. It was a great time. It felt like normal life (laughs) in Texas. And here I am now in New York. I flew from Texas to New York, and it is, in a lot of ways, night and day. And we'll get into the politics and all that stuff in a second. But first, Will Kane, you're a huge sports guy. I'm a big sports guy. You're an even much bigger, I would say, NFL fan than I am. I will ask you this, and I did a Twitter poll last night, and the numbers are lopsided 96 percent agreed with this was this past weekend divisional weekend in the nfl the best weekend of football setting aside allegiances that you've ever seen 
at least in memory, we're always susceptible to that kind of hyperbole. Sure. Greatest game I've ever seen. Greatest performance of all time. Greatest quarterback of all time. We obviously have a recency bias. However, in my memory, and my memory is fading, by the way, but in my memory, I can't remember a better, a better football weekend. Now, Divisional round of the NFL playoffs is the best weekend of professional football every year. It smokes wildcard weekend because the matchups are better, the Mm -hmm. competition closer. And it's always the best weekend because by the time you get to championship weekend, you're almost starting to begin those heroin shake withdrawals. Like you've only got two (laughs) games. You're not used to this. I've only got two games this weekend. And the Super Bowl is weirdly kind of almost anticlimactic where you only have one game. But, yes, Saturday and Sunday – I mean, four games, every single one of them decided on the last play yeah, of the game. Yeah, four walk-offs. That's, that's the reason why, and I totally take your point on recency bias. I'm just saying I did not have strong rooting interests at all. Like, my awful Giants smell. They're nowhere near the playoffs. The only thing I can enjoy as a Giants fan is watching, sorry, your Cowboys and the Eagles both lose on the same day last weekend. That was fun. Or the same weekend, at least. So I did not have strong partisanship going into the weekend. Just the entertainment value of all four games, all of which were walk-off victories for the winning team, That it's hard to beat that. So I'm somebody in sports that almost always needs a rooting interest. I need a vested side, and you know, gambling can serve that purpose. <laughs> uh, being a fan, more often than not, obviously, is the main the main partisan um, factor, but I'll often just randomly pick something as well. Just watching the game, all of a sudden it will evolve, and I start rooting. I think you we all decide. Do. Is it based on players? Is it based on the team? Is it based on like fan bases you dislike? How do you make those decisions? It's not even about dislike. Do you not like? Let's take the the best game of the best weekend. Let's take Chiefs Bills. Mm-hmm. The nightcap the final game of the four and was the best of the four it was did you watch that completely neutral or did you find yourself rooting for one side or one player as the game went along so and first of all just to say i cannot believe that somehow the finale the fourth of four was the best it's like how can it possibly live up to what we've already seen and then it beat it i mean that final two minute stretch was stunning it was stunning i was shouting at the television alone in a hotel room, right? (laughs) It was that level of excitement. I was rooting, so I have nothing against the Chiefs. I like Mahomes. I have friends who are Chiefs fans. Arrowhead seems like an awesome venue. I'm not mad that they won, but I was absolutely rooting for the Bills just because they're so long-suffering. Their fans are so long-suffering. I like their quarterback a lot. I like their stingy defense until the very end of the game. Obviously, they could stop nothing. So I was rooting for the Bills, and then we know how that turned out, as it always does for Bills fans, actually. I think most of America was exactly where you were. I was rooting for the Bills. I picked the Bills, so I had a little wager on that. Not a big one, but a little bit vested interest in the Bills. But beyond that... Everyone roots for an underdog, and the Buffalo Bills are an underdog over the Kansas City Chiefs. Same thing. In fact, if you asked me if I had to pick, do you like or dislike Mahomes? I definitely like Mahomes. Mm-hmm. Do you like or dislike the Chiefs? I like the Chiefs. But I wanted to see Josh Allen succeed. And so, Guy, when you have been in politics as long as you have, and you know that I've come and gone and come back again to politics. And, I don't and know we've how both much... done the politics and the sports thing in our career, which is also one of the things we have in common, which is why I like having you on. 
So I don't know how much this hit the the general mass market um, recognition. And I tweeted this last night, but I don't know if you remember. There was a pretty good concerted attempt to cancel Josh Allen when he was coming out into the NFL draft. And the problem is we've done this so many times. Cancel culture has come after so many different Yeah, it's hard to keep track of them. That it is hard to keep track. For example, probably not a lot of people remember, the same thing happened to Kyler Murray after he won the Heisman Trophy. I do remember that. Over, like, tweets when he was 15 or some nonsense. Exactly. He yeah. used homophobic slurs, by the way, at that time, and he was a young teenager. In Josh Allen's case, he was also a young teenager. He was 14, maybe 15, and he tweeted out some some racial slurs. He was, though, as you kind of dug deeper, quoting rap lyrics and quoting lines from Modern Family, Apparently, I don't, and I don't have it exactly in front of me. But the point, the point is, there was an effort to go into a 14-year-old, maybe 15-year-old's tweets and mm-hmm. hold him accountable. And I just found that so grotesque. Not on Josh Allen's part. I mean, of course, the, he he did something wrong and bad, and he was a kid. But the adults that find virtue in 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 canceling these kids, I just find so grotesque. Although, so, you know what's so great? Obviously, they failed. Yes. The country was rooting for him. Yes. And the other thing is the mob always moves on. And, and so, they move and they move to the popular side, which was I saw many of those same characters rooting him on last night. Yeah, they you just know, they forgot you, they forgot their own cancel efforts. That's the thing. They can't keep track of who they hate. And obviously for now it's Aaron Rodgers because of the vaccine stuff. So right. they all moved to him. They all forgot about Josh Allen and his, you know, teenage rap lyric tweets. I mean, it is sort of ridiculous. And ultimately we sometimes think about political aspects to sports. Sometimes they put it right in your face, which annoys me. I know it annoys you too, but there was none of that over the weekend. The games were just thrilling in many cases, well-played wild affairs and politics seemed to just step aside for a while. People across the spectrum were saying, holy bleep together watching these games. Are you not entertained? We are. Pure joy. Pure joy. And by the way, cancel culture would rob you of that joy. But moving back to the joy where yes. our focus should be, um, I, I'd say in the end, you know, I'm, I'm sad. As, as great as it was, and it was obviously incredibly great, I am sad Josh Allen is out of the pl- playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. I want to watch him play. He reminds me of what I thought Vince Young. You know, you mentioned the Longhorns. I'm a massive Longhorn fan. I loved Vince Young. Josh Allen pretty much is what I thought Vince Young would be. The way he runs the ball, his physicality, he went from inaccurate to accurate. So I'm sad that Josh Allen is now out. Yeah, I want I'm to happy. see him play Burrow. I mean, exactly. that, would been, that would have been such a fun matchup. By the way, quickly, quickly, before we get to a little bit more politics, what's your take on the whole overtime rules controversy? So... I'm not as outraged as everyone else. Um, I do think you can perfect it. We should look at making it better. I do wish Josh Allen and the Bills had a chance to to get the ball as well in overtime last night. But, look, I like overtime now better than the way it used to be, which was sudden death with a kick, right? It could be a kick that ends a game. Yes, this is better, but it this can be better. better. But in, in And I saw many of my old colleagues and, and many of my still friends saying, hey, look, you know, defense is part of the game. And the Bills had a chance in regular time with 13 seconds yeah. to simply rob them of, what, 40, 50 yards of field position. That's it. That's it. And then you had a chance again, which is a harder task, of stopping Patrick Mahomes and, and by the in way, overtime. And by the way, when there were 13 seconds left and the Bills score, and I just like I could not believe that they had just scored. There's 13 seconds on the clock. I tweeted, too much time? And I you was did. mostly joking. Right. And right. then it was too much time. 
I think I tweeted too much time at least twice last night because you know, but there were 17 <laughs> points scored in the final 73 seconds of regular. That is time. bananas. So when when jo- when Patrick Mahomes scored with one minute to go and left a minute, maybe it's slightly under for the Bills. I said too much time. Josh Allen will score, and he did. And then I didn't though. I didn't like you guy with 13 seconds because I did not conceive that thir- the Cowboys couldn't pull off two plays <laughs> in 14 seconds. I, I was going to say it. Wasn't going to say it. You <laughs> brought it up but yes I, that is something that we remembered from the previous weekend uh, look I have no idea how the rest of the playoffs can possibly live up to what we all just witnessed it won't it can't I don't think but it was so much fun and I'm more into college than NFL for sure and yet you just cannot argue with what the NFL put on in terms of that show in those four games Will Kane co-host of Fox and Friends weekend last question Will totally political I saw that you said something this week just a few days ago, you said that Joe Biden is the worst president in your lifetime and maybe ever. Is that recency bias? Make the case there. I like that you tied it into how we started our conversation. There you go. Full circle. Is that recency bias? I'll do the same. Is it hyperbolic? You know, and here's here's I don't I, I don't seek to be intentionally hyperbolic or, um, you know, too partisan in my in my political commentary. I seek to be right. And here's why I think that I'm right. Um, you can point to others. Let's just let's just focus on my lifetime. Jimmy Carter uh, was inept, was mistake prone, and I think generally bungled the job of presidency in the United States. Everything from inflation, gas prices to the Iran hostage crisis. And then you come along and you get to Barack Obama, who was purely, purely, very ideological. And as he went along, not in the beginning, but as he went along, was willing to use divisiveness to to push forward his ideology, meaning he leaned into like Trayvon Martin could have been my son, racial divisiveness, I think, uh, and other forms of, of divisiveness. What makes Joe Biden unique is he's both. He's both incompetent and divisive. And I hold the divisiveness against him more than the incompetence, more than inflation, you know, and that could change if he continues to bungle what could turn into a massive war in Europe. But what bothers me at this point and solidifies him as the worst is his willingness to to vilify unvaccinated Americans, to pit black and white against one another, to continue to divide Americans against themselves. Right, Jim Crow, to advance Bull Connor. Yes, that. And then one final. And, and, he said, and by the way, he said his, his actual mandate that he identified for himself after he won was unity and healing and bringing the temperature down. And his response to that now, his version of himself one year later, is to openly call for the censorship of those who disagree with him. Guy, look, Obama did not do that. You know, Trump certainly did not do that. In other words, he has said, hey, YouTube, Twitter, um, social media platforms, we need to be doing something about this stuff, this misinformation that disagrees with me. That's so scary and dangerous when combined with divisiveness. That leads this country over the cliff. And by the way, that's just where we are one year in. Just wait. If Russia and Ukraine explode into some kind of European theater of war, then I have, I have, I'm only slightly early to everyone else's inevitable judgment. Well, look, uh, there's stiff competition for worst president ever. And you might be right. You make a strong case here. I will say that Biden last week said that he has outperformed expectations. And the NBC poll this weekend showed that a whopping 5% of Americans agree with that assessment, which is basically at this point blood relatives for him. Uh, So we'll leave it there for now. And we'll see if the next months and years further vindicate 
the case that you're making, or if perhaps we will revisit that case at the end of the Biden presidency, which will hopefully be in 2024, early 2025. Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend. Always appreciate it. Great chat as always. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Monday in the Big Apple. Thanks for joining us. This is going to be a version in this segment of Woke Tales. All right, we're going to call this real or not real. I saw the clip on social media. I tweeted it with some, let's say, strong skepticism. Like, come on. But there was a parent or a member of the public at a school board meeting in Michigan talking about something that was going on in a high school, allegedly, in that district. Here's what was alleged in Cut 21. It was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that are that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a in one of the unisex bathrooms a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. Well, I am, too. If it's true. A litter box for furries which is what Beto O'Rourke allegedly is in Texas, by the way. You can ask comfortably smug about that. But these are, I guess, supposedly students who identify as cats, and they put a litter box in the bathroom at the school. Real or not in our age of woke tales? My guess was not real, but I had to look it up. Here's the answer from a school official. Quote, let me be clear in this communication. There is no truth whatsoever to this false statement slash accusation. There have never been litter boxes within the school district. So this one apparently is not real. But you had to think about it, didn't you? That's today's Woke Tales on The Guy Benson Show. Happy Hour continues next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today in our first hour, we caught up with General Jack Keane, retired four-star general. A lot to talk about, of course, with Russia and Ukraine. He knows a lot about this stuff. He is a rich source of information. So we put many questions to the general. He had a lot to say. Here's part of that exchange earlier with General Jack Keane. I've seen some of the arguments back and forth about diplomats, families, and certain personnel at the embassy being told they should start to get out of Ukraine, get out of Kiev ahead of what could be this Russian invasion, Russian incursion, whatever it's going to be. And I see that the Ukrainian government is saying that is way premature for the Biden administration to be doing that. The EU is not recommending a similar course of action for their diplomats and families at this time yet. Setting that aside, and you can address that if you want to, General, I'm sort of wondering if the Biden administration is saying that at least some of our personnel need to get out of Kiev, would that not suggest that they're expecting potentially a much bigger invasion, not just an incursion into some, you know, 
uh, distant part of Ukraine, but potentially all the way into the into the capital. I mean, I'm sort of reading into that as saying they think that Putin might be going for regime change or something here. Am I missing something? Well, first of all, we just don't flat know how much you know, the administration knows in terms of its intelligence services and and um, what is the likely scale of this attack is what you're what you're dealing with. If, if there is going to be one, I I I kind of think that they're being influenced by the Afghanistan debacle, and they don't want to do anything that would create a situation which projected that they were, really were not on top of it. Um, if, if this situation is, as many of us who are analyzing it, turns out to be the case, that Putin is not going to do uh, an all-out invasion to occupy Ukraine uh, for two reasons. One, he hasn't prepared his population for that kind of an event, which would mean uh, several thousand casualties to Russians fighting the, the Ukraine army in its entirety. Um, and number two... I think he fears the obvious that would come of such such an endeavor that the Ukrainians would conduct an insurgency against a Putin government that's now in charge of Ukraine. Obviously, there would be Ukrainians running this, uh, stooges for, for Putin like Yanukovych was prior to his 2014 ouster by the Ukrainian people. And and the Ukrainians would fight him for as long as it took. He would be involved in a protracted war. He knows that. And he's got Afghanistan, the Soviet Union's involvement in Afghanistan in the 80s for almost a decade in his rearview mirror. And that turned out to be something of a fiasco for them because the, the steady and persistent casualties that he experienced were not showing a lot of progress uh, in Afghanistan. The Russian people principally Soviet Union writ large, uh, forced the leadership to get out of there. So, yeah, I, I think the most likely is if there is a, a military invasion, it's likely in the east. He may uh, take some troops across the, the Belarus-Ukraine uh, border. Um, yeah, that's why I'm wondering could, about sort of evacuating or telling some of our people to leave the capital city. I mean, that caught my attention as saying that seems like a much bigger invasion if that's at least within the the the, the matrix of threats here that they're looking at. And that's perhaps part of the reason why the Ukrainians have been pushing back, saying uh, that is a significant overreaction from the Biden administration, at least at this time. General, we've seen the reports that started in The New York Times was the first place I saw it reported. And then it was confirmed at the White House There are 8,500 troops. I think the Pentagon confirmed this too. 8,500 U.S. troops now in a heightened state of readiness. What exactly does that mean? And if they were to be deployed, where would they go? Yeah, well, these troops are not going to Ukraine. We have three presidents that have made a decision. This is Obama, Trump, and Biden, that the United States is not going to go to war over Ukraine because they're they're a non-aligned country. That means they're not in a part of NATO. And so these troops are going to go to NATO countries that are in the vicinity of Ukraine, likely Poland, possibly Romania, Bulgaria, etc. You put them into the Baltic states as well. 
that to reinforce those NATO countries, to send a message clearly to Putin, you know, Putin has two objectives. One is, is certainly to make certain that Ukraine never does join NATO or join the EU, and that he's very frustrated with the potential of a thriving capitalistic democracy uh, on his border, uh, only 300 uh, miles from Moscow. Uh, and, and that's what this is all about, certainly. But the, the second thing is, and he, for 20 years, he's been trying to undermine and divide NATO. And he's had some success at it, to be frank. Uh, so we're putting troops in there to make certain that he gets the message that we will defend NATO countries. And we're bringing troops from as far away as the United States and obviously in other Western uh, European countries and move them to the east to send that message to Putin. I, I do agree with, with that move, and I thought it should have been done, actually, in the spring when, uh, when Putin made his first demonstration of forces on the Ukraine border. My full interview with General Jack Keane on Russia, Ukraine, and more. It's available in its entirety, as well as the whole show, today and every day on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, bit of a weekend recap. As I mentioned, I was in Texas. Producer Christine was home with a husband who was going bonkers watching football like many Americans. She was totally confused by all of it. We will get together, chat about it, recap it all straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. Tune in tonight for special report in the 6 p.m. hour and Kennedy in the 7 p.m. hour, Fox News Channel and Fox Business Network, respectively. I'll be on the panels for both of those shows tonight. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. Podcast always free, growing thanks to all of you. But we talked about it a little bit. Earlier this hour with Will Kane, I was down in Texas for the weekend, did the show on Friday from Austin, had a great time. Austin is a fun town, great restaurants, great beverages, live music. We had a fabulous experience. Happy birthday to Adam. That was yesterday. Some of his friends were there. We just had a great time. And I always look forward to going back to Texas. By the way, one thing that I noticed, and Adam was actually the one who pointed this out, there were signs up in public places businesses, that sort of thing. In New York, they say you must wear a mask to enter because that's the rule here. And I guess if you're a child in school, you have to wear a mask. You have to be outside eating your lunch in the freezing cold. It's just totally insane here. Texas, so much more sane. Where instead of you must wear a mask, the signs said something along the lines of, and we saw this on multiple occasions, You may wear a mask if it makes you feel more comfortable. If you are uncomfortable with unmasked people, you do not have to enter. Basically, you do you, but if you have a problem with it, don't come in here. That's a little bit less polite than the way they phrase it on these signs. But to me, I was like reading the placard like, thank you. That is sanity. God bless Texas. So we had a great time. Now, Dan, I want to bring you in real quick because you're a huge sports guy, worked for Dan Patrick for years. You heard the debate or the discussion with Will Kane earlier. Do you have a strong vantage point on was this the best football weekend you've ever seen? 
It was up there, but as a Packer fan, it was pretty rough for me Saturday. I was going in pretty excited about it, and as an Aaron Rodgers fan, I love watching him play. Um, it might be his last time um, in Green Bay. It might. It yeah. might. So that was kind of a bummer for me. So you are your judgment is colored by the sadness about the outcome because you had a team in the fight. But if you can just take yourself out of the Packers fandom side of this for just a moment, take off the green and gold hat from just sort of like an objective standpoint as best you can, it's kind of hard to argue with the premise. No, it was one of the best I've ever seen. I mean, for four games to come down to last-minute field goals or a score was pretty unbelievable in any sport for me. I mean, a, in a playoff weekend was fantastic. And and like Will was saying, I do have a rooting interest. Yesterday, I loved Josh Allen. So I had a rooting interest in the Bills, and I wanted to see them win. So you had a lot of disappointment. I had a weekend. lot of disappointment <laughs> this weekend. That's, and do you are you like change the playoff overtime rule or not? I go back and forth on it because I think – you know, you should have another chance, but and and the coin toss should not. You know, it's just like almost decisive it, last night. It's almost decisive, and a I lot would of the like players. I like to say yeah. both teams in the playoffs because they have different rules. For example, in hockey, in the playoffs for overtimes, which I would not want implemented in the regular season, but I wouldn't want the regular season rules in the playoffs. They go until someone scores in the hockey playoffs in the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. I think in football, a better solution would be. Both teams get at least one possession, and if it is still tied after each team gets the ball, with the exception of, like, if there's a pick six on the first possession or a safety or something on the first possession, that's a different story. But each team gets a chance to score, after which there's a sudden death situation. I'm much more open to that, but I'm not... I'm not so worked up over it that I'm screaming about it on social media. I just know I put out that Twitter poll last night. Was this the best weekend you've ever seen? Last I checked, there were thousands of votes, and it was in the mid to high 90s. Like 96% said yes. Best weekend of football I've ever seen. Now, producer Christine, you are not a sports fan at all. You know very little um, about sports. You don't really care to know very much about sports. Your husband is a sports fan. You said that he was in rare form last night. Yeah, Bobby's a very mature guy. He's not one to be screaming, jumping up and down during any sports games. But Megan and I were upstairs minding our own business, watching a movie, and we could hear, like, stomping and jumping up and down and yelling and clapping. And this wasn't even his team, right? He's a Pats fan. No. Yes, he's a Pats fan. So I don't I didn't I didn't understand what was going on, but then I looked on Twitter and all I see is everybody, you included writing OMG or whoa, I can't believe <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. I, I didn't understand what was happening, but I knew it had to be sports, so Megan and I went back to just watching Yeah, the non-sports people are disgusted by this. When there's big games on Twitter and people are all reacting, the non-sports people just sneer so hard. I got a little bit of that actually off of Quiet Wyatt earlier on our phone call. He was like, ugh, it was just sports. It wasn't even news. But, I mean, I'm sorry. This is America. And when there's playoff football on and the games are insane, Twitter is allowed. I'm actually in favor of that form of Twitter insanity because it's such a cesspool most of the time. 
it was almost charming last night to have everyone together losing their minds because it was actually justified for once. You were just, you said, minding your own business upstairs. You just had no interest in the game whatsoever. Did you just like put on Netflix or something? Yeah, no. Megan and I watch movies usually on Sunday if Bobby's downstairs on the big TV watching sports. We we don't mind that he does that, but we're not joining in on watching football. I mean, we don't really know what's going on. What was the movie so, of choice? Ooh, it was a good one from the 80s. Do you remember Clue? Oh, yeah. Clue is a classic, and it's a movie spinoff of the board game. The board game came yes. first. The movie came out, wow, you're right, 1985, and it's hilarious. I think it absolutely stands up. I haven't seen it in years, but that is a great movie. So my daughter and Bobby and I have been playing a lot of Clue, the actual game, especially this past month when none of us were really leaving the house. And Megan loves Clue. She loves the game. She's getting really good at it. So uh, Bobby and I had been going back and forth about showing her the movie because I figured, I thought it was a little too mature for her. She absolutely loved it. So much so that we watched it again this weekend. We watched it twice because she loves the movie. And remember, the ending is so good. Well, they give you scenarios. Yes, which is super cool. See, now I'm I'm Googling the movie. It has quite a cast, too. Yes. Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn. Michael McKean, Christopher Lloyd, Martin Mull. I mean, there are some big names in this movie, and they all play the various characters from the game. So Tim Curry is the butler, Wadsworth, and then you've got Miss Scarlet and Mrs. White and, you know, all of them. Colonel Mustard, Professor Plum, etc. It has a little bit of intrigue, but it's mostly comedy. There's some slapstick in there. How old is Megan? I feel like that movie might be a little racy for an eight-year-old. Yeah. It is a little racy, but she's eight, but don't forget, sometimes she's more mature. Okay, a lot of the times, Megan is much more mature than I am. So, no, she absolutely loved it. It was, like I said, we watched it twice. We watched it Saturday night as a family. It's fantastic. She asked asked to watch it again last night. So, while Bobby was carrying on like a juvenile downstairs, and I don't get to say that often. Usually, I'm the juvenile carrying on. Uh, Megan and I were upstairs watching Clue. Now, I I will give you this. Fine, you know, uh, country, commodity. Like, you know, we all get together and talk about sports. But you guys are not explaining to us what's going on for the non-football people. We're we're seeing you in real time, right? OMG, or I can't believe this. And I agree with why. We think something major is going now, on. See that, you that's, know, now, that's your problem. That's your problem. You can, you can get with the program or you can just ignore <laughs> it and watch Clue. And the singing telegram, which is one of the parts oh, of the movie that I definitely I remember. That. Did Bobby yeah. by any chance mention or make the easy joke that you watching this movie was perhaps one of the first times in your life that you had a clue? And on that note... We're going to end the segment. Are we going to? Uh, you didn't answer my question. Did Bobby beat me to that one, or was that me getting there first? He, he did not. But uh, Bobby and I took a very, by the way, just a side note, we took a very long walk yesterday uh, during our open house because we had to get out of the house. And he was listening to Bonus Benson earlier in the morning, and uh, he said, do you want to explain to me what a chakra cleaning is? And so I had to explain to him what I wanted to get done and... <laughs> 
Did Probably he veto right that? There, Mary wanted to tell me to get it. No, I'm not allowed to go get it. Are you kidding? Yeah, that's that's the right call. Now I want to hear about the the open house. You're you know you're back at it again. Good interest, very quickly. A lot of interest. Right. My uh, real estate agent said that it was a blessing in disguise. We already have three offers. Whoa, uh, we're doing final and yeah, we're doing final and best. Apparently Wednesday at five p.m. Whoa, so whoa, whoa! Three offers. Like you buried the lead here. I know. Well, I didn't want to say anything. Okay, until okay. We, really we will revisit. Know. We don't want to jinx it because it didn't really work out last time. It all fell through. But oh, blessing in disguise. I like that. That is a very exciting development. We are out of time. I got to get over to special report coming up this hour. Kennedy in the following hour, back here, same time, same place, from New York City tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.